Good morning, everyone.
All right, good morning again to all of you. Could turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. We're continuing our study of, of the uh, Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, which we actually we pointed out in our introduction, which we're going to finish off today, uh, that he's uh, it's actually not only directed to the Ephesian Christian community, this letter, but he's also writing to the various uh, churches throughout the various cities in the Roman province of Asia. So uh, that uh, will continue our, wrap up our introduction today, actually, by noting the themes of grace and peace in the Ephesian epistle. And uh, there's, you know, I, I mean, we started off this uh, introduction by noting uh, the major purpose of this letter, which was to uh, maintain the unity of the Christian community through the, the uh, obeying the command to love one another. And so uh, I, I could probably put, <laughs> I, I'm going to, uh, when you get the written document of this, uh, download it from our website at wednesday.org or my website at academia.edu. When you look at this introduction in PDF format of uh, Ephesians, uh, you'll note that I have uh, a big section on love. So I didn't do that because uh, actually you, love and unity are actually tied together. So I kind of like put it there uh, when I t discussed uh, the purpose of the letter and the unity of the letter. Uh, one of the major themes was uh, unity, as I pointed out, and I noted the purpose, which are tied together. The purpose and, and the first major theme, which is unity, and that's all to be accomplished through um, obeying the command to love one another. So I didn't really go into a whole thing about love like I'm going to do about grace and peace today and how I, did, I talked about truth and the gospel. Uh, what else did we note uh, that was uh, big, big themes in this uh, particular epistle? Uh, let's see, we, I know we have truth, we had the gospel, we had our position in Christ. Uh, we noted, I'm just looking at my document here for this that I wrote, uh, Jesus Christ, of course, truth, reconciliation, the church, the gospel, our position in Christ, sanctification, salvation, the work, personal work of the Holy Spirit, and spiritual warfare, and the Trinity. So there's a lot of themes in this particular letter. So we're going to uh, wrap up our study of this introduction by noting the themes of grace and peace. And actually, grace is actually tied to God's attribute of love. It's a function of it. Uh, so, uh, manifestation of it. So, we're going to uh, wrap up our study of the introduction, and then we'll be noting on Saturday, begin to note uh, verse by verse study of this Ephesian epistle. And um, it's going to be fantastic. The, the, the preface of the letter in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 is brilliant. It's it's going to be a lot of fun to do. The whole book, I knew, I worked on this book in, in different times, and uh, the original language is like I did a whole thing on spiritual warfare, and I, I exegeted uh, Ephesians six ten to eighteen, I think, or nineteen. So I know. Um, so I'm, I'm I'm really looking forward to doing this. Uh, I'm I'm actually as I, when I finish off this uh, class today and upload the uh, recordings, uh, I'm going to uh, be working on Ephesians one eighteen, which is I think I mentioned it to you the other is really a challenge because it's so the syntax of it is very unusual uh, that uh, Paul uses in that verse. So and it's related to Paul's request for the recipients of this great letter. So um, we're going to uh, take a moment of silent prayer. This is our custom. We take a moment of silent prayer to examine ourselves to determine if we're in fellowship with God because any mental, verbal, or overt act of sin that we knowingly commit will cause us to lose fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But according to 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins to the Father, He, God the Father, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. In other words, He purifies us from each and every wrongdoing. Now we maintain that fellowship by obeying the Spirit who speaks to us through the Scriptures which He's inspired. And that's when we're obeying the commands of Ephesians 5.18 to be filled with the Spirit and Colossians 3.16 to let the Word of Christ richly dwell in our souls. So if there's anything that's bothering you, disturbing and distracting you, do what 1 Peter 5.7 says, cast all your anxieties upon the Lord because He cares for you. So with that in mind, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let us pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you've given to us, another day to study your, your almighty word. We thank you so much for this great epistle that you've given to us through your servant, your servant um, Paul and the Spirit. I just pray, Father, that you would bless us in this study and especially our study today um, in, in the uh, studying the themes of grace and peace in this letter. And I just pray, Father, today that you would help your people in the audience. And I thank you for each and every one of them, whether they're live or through the recordings, listening in or watching. I just do our various websites, podcasts, and media platforms that you've given to us. I pray that you would help them all to concentrate, to make application, to, con- uh, to uh, break down any barriers sin and Satan might put up that would hinder that from happening so that they can receive the necessary spiritual nourishment and praise you and your son, Jesus Christ, and the Spirit, by the power of the Spirit. I pray that you would help me as the communicator, use me mightily, and help me be sensitive to the Spirit's guidance and direction, help me to bring forth again your full counsel today to your people with regards to these themes of grace and peace in this great epistle. Uh, help me to do so with reverence, respect, and power so I can uh, provide for your children their necessary spiritual nourishment and all of us continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of our great God and Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ. I also pray that there be no problems with the technology. I thank you for it. I thank you for the, uh, the um, streaming video provided by YouTube. Thank you for that. I pray it would function properly today. And also, I pray there be no problems with the recordings, the video, and the audio, and uploading these things to our various website, podcasts, and media platforms that you've given to us. And I pray that you would use those mightily, and I know you are, and, uh, but, and also protect them from the evil uh, one, and I know you are as well in that area. So I pray for these things and people, and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen. Okay, you should be at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. And as I said before, we're going to wrap up our introduction of this uh, epistle by noting the themes of grace and peace uh, in, in this letter, uh, quickly by way of review in this introduction, and all the things I mentioned in this introduction are uh, very, very important when we come to interpreting this letter. Uh, the things that we mentioned, if you go to a commentary, especially those an exegetical commentary or t- any commentary, and, or a Bible dictionary, and you look at like Ephesians, they'll be covering many of the things that I'm mentioning uh, in this introduction with you. So we started off by noting that the canonicity of this book was never in question. Uh, the early church from the, immediately had recognized this book as being inspired by God. And as we pointed out, inspiration determines canonization. No church council or Constantine uh, ever made a decree that said certain books get in the Bible and certain books are, are inspired and certain books are not. Uh, God, the Holy Spirit, determined which books were inspired and which books go in the canon. And the church, all they did in Old Testament Israel is simply recognize uh, the uh, the divine authorship of this particular epistle, so it was it was immediately accepted as being uh, inspired by God. And then we noted the authorship uh, is Pauline. Paul says it's he's it is him. Uh, he's uh, we also pointed out that there are those who dissent with that. They think this is a pseudonymous letter. Amazingly, and I say that in astonishment, <laughs> astonishingly, I should say, uh, because uh, the church never accepted pseudonymous le- pseudonymous letters, and neither did Paul. Uh, we pointed that out in Second Thessalonians. Uh, he, to win, uh, remember, he was concerned about false doctrine of the day of the Lord already taking place in his day and age, taking place through a letter allegedly from them, as he says in Second Thessalonians two two. And then at the end of the letter, he says, "This is my authenticating mark." Why did he do that? Because he wanted to prevent thought forgeries. Uh, there's also Tertullian mentions in his work on baptism that a pastor who was revered Paul wanted to increase his fame. Uh, posed as Paul and writing to a particular church, and they excommunicated him. Even if it was for good intentions, they never accepted pseudonymous letters. And furthermore, the early church uh, 
always accepted Ephesians like 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus as Pauline. But again, this is the postmodern arrogance of uh, men. And ever since 19, uh, 19th century, we've had, especially in the 20th century, there's been uh, our, um, uh, people who are saying that the, Paul uh, didn't really write 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus and Eve, Ephesians now. And uh, which is astonishing because uh, the church is, the church which was closer to the autographs historically than us, there was never any question for two almost almost all the way up to the nineteenth century. You never heard anybody say boo about the authorship. But again, you know, in our day and age, you know, ever since the uh, the Enlightenment, we think we're smarter than the ancients. <laughs> in fact, why do we have so many more wars than the ancients did? <laughs> I guess we're so much smarter than them, aren't we? Anyways, uh, that's another another story for another day. But uh, so we know it's uh, it's Pauline, and then we noted he uh, Paul wrote this to um, not only the Ephesian Christian community, but he also wrote uh, this letter to the various Christian communities in the various cities throughout the Roman province of Asia. How do we know that? Well, there's no personal greetings in this letter, uh, like First John, which had no personal greetings, uh, and we see that Paul doesn't have any personal greetings here in Ephesians. Why? That's very significant because Acts 18, 19, 20 all say that Paul spent three years in Ephesus. So he would certainly know some people there by name. But we don't see that in Ephesians. So that's a big indication that we got a circular letter or encyclical encyclical letter, letter as they say. And so also another indication of that is the word, a phrase in Ephesus, in Epheso. Uh, which we see in the Greek text is not appearing in the best and latest manuscripts that we have. Uh, in Ephesus, does appear in many of the manuscripts and uh, most of them, uh, but uh, but that's significant as well. And uh, what appears to have taken place uh, is that um, when Paul wrote from Romans, he sends it sends it over to Ephesus with Tychicus, and then the next uh, then he makes copies there. That was his home base, Paul's home base, Ephesus. So. That was the first stop. That's why we have the most copies of uh, this uh, particular letter with it being addressed to the saints in Ephesus. Then it went over to Laodicea. And we know from Martian, one of the ancients, that uh, he saw a letter, the same thing we call Ephesians. He saw that uh, letter with a title to the, uh, the saints in Laodicea. So that's very significant as well. And so uh, this would all indicate that this was a circular letter. And what actually took place is, I, and I believe Dan, Dan Wallace is right because this, I got this scenario from him in studying for this uh, particular um, aspect of this letter, uh, is that it was written by Paul, sent to Ephesus, and then you take a kiss. They made copies there. It was, Ephesus was the first stop because that was his home base. They made copies, sent it over to Laodicea. He took the letter to Laodicea. By the way, um, the many believe that Ephesians Colossians four eighteen when he mentions the letter to the Laodiceans they think that's the the Ephesian epistle, and Martian gives evidence for that. Um, so then so they went to Laodicea and then it went to the various churches in the Roman uh, Roman province of Asia, and you know you say see the seven churches in Asia in Revelation two and three, those are the churches that received this Ephesian epistle initially. So the re- recipients of this letter were the. Christians, not only in Ephesus, but also the various Christian communities in the various cities and towns in the Roman province of, uh, Roman province of Asia, which is now Turkey. And then we noted that Paul wrote uh, from Rome. Uh, uh, those, many, there are some that say he wrote from Ephesus or Caesarea, but there's no indications of that. The, the, the early church recognized it as being from Rome. There's evidence that he was imprisoned 
Ephesians 3, 1, Ephesians 4, 1 say he was a prisoner of the Lord. And uh, we know from the early church that they all recognized Ephesians along with Colossians, Philemon, and Philippians as being written during Paul's first Roman imprisonment. And between AD 60 and 62, it's mentioned in Acts 28 that he had his own rented quarters and he was able to uh, receive people and teach. And so that's where he wrote this particular letter. And, uh, and then we, uh, we noted this particular letter is a letter. We noted the literary genre. It's an epistle. It follows a, the typical Greco-Roman uh, pattern of letterizing. We have the introduction, Thanksgiving. And, well, in this case, with, uh, with this particular letter, we have a, a doxology and then a Thanksgiving to follow in an intercessory prayer for the recipients of this letter. And then we have the body of the letter. And then we have a closing. And there's a parenthesis section as well, typical and many letters in the Greco-Roman culture. And so uh, we see that uh, this is uh, just a, a, a typical letter that you would have, but it happens to be inspired by the Holy Spirit. And, uh, and so then we, you know, we noted uh, the various great themes that are found in this letter, as I mentioned before. Uh, unity is the, in the purpose, which in the first major uh, typical major theme of the letter is unity through the obedience to the command to love one another. Uh, so... We know that's the major purpose of the letter. And uh, the structure of this letter uh, is quite interesting um, as well. But, uh, we see that the, we have the first three chapters. We call, call them the indicatives of the Christian faith, um, affirmations, assertions. And then and then we have the imperatives in chapters 4, 5, and 6, meaning Paul's giving the application in the last three chapters of the book of the first three chapters. He's given an application for you. And then uh, so then we see in the beginning of this application section, in chapter 4, he talks about the unity of the faith through the practice of the command to love one another. So that's the major, uh, that's the purpose of the letter, and that's the first major theme, unity through the practice of the command to love one another. We also noted truth as a major theme. It's mentioned quite a bit. We also see the gospel, and then we also see the Christian's uh, union identification with Christ, his position in Christ. Uh, we also uh, see the spiritual warfare as a major uh, theme in chapter 6. Uh, and then we also see, uh, in uh, as I pointed out to you at my uh, when we looked at my article before the opening prayer you had also um, uh, we also have Jesus Christ of course the personal work of Christ reconciliation the church is another big theme uh, the work personal work of the Holy Spirit salvation sanctification the Trinity uh, we left off with that uh, in our last class that all the different triadic patterns that are found in this particular letter so this is this letter is chock full of doctrine uh, but it uh, it does have a tremendous practical application uh, for the church today. It's one of the most beloved letters in the ch church's history, and it's one of my favorites. And it's going to be one of my favorites when I get uh, when I get done working on this book. And uh, so uh, I love Romans. Romans was you know uh, it's just like a it's like a, a mountain. <laughs> Romans has got everything there, but Ephesians is probably right there with it not as long and doesn't touch as many issues as Paul uh, uh, does and uh, but it touches quite a bit and so it's uh, it's the citadel of Paulinism I don't know if that was a paraphrase some other guy but it's like if you want to know about you know Paul I mean I, I laugh at people who say this is uh, you know soon as lever because uh, it's, it's so Paul Pauline you know um, but anyways we're going to look at grace and truth uh, grace and peace today and uh, wrap up our study of this introduction before we get into a verse-by-verse -verse study starting on Saturday. So, uh, grace is, as I said before, also a major theme in this epistle because the noun haris, grace, 
in this letter, which is translated grace in this letter, appears 12 times in this epistle. Ephesians 1, 2, 6, 7, 25, 7, 8, Ephesians 3, 2, 7, and 8, Ephesians 4, 7, and 29, and 6, 24. So this is a major theme because it appears this particular uh, word, haris, grace, appears 12 times in the letter. So it's, it's, it's a major theme. So look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. I'm reading from the NIV. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, haris, grace, and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So what is grace? Grace is all that God is free to do and imparting unmerited blessings to those who trust in His Son, Jesus Christ, the Savior, based upon the merits of His Son, Jesus Christ, and His death on the cross. So grace is all that God is free to do in imparting unmerited blessings to us people, for those of us who have been declared justified through faith in Jesus Christ. Grace flows from His attribute of love. Uh, these are unmerited blessings, and they f flow through the function of His attribute of love. So also it's very important to understand is that grace is God treating us in a manner that we do not deserve. And it excludes any human works in order to acquire eternal salvation or blessing from God. Grace means that God saved us, therefore, and blessed us despite ourselves and not according to anything that we do, but rather saved us and blessed us because of the merits of His Son, Jesus Christ, and His work on the cross. Grace excludes any human merit, therefore, in salvation and blessing, and gives the Creator all the credit and the creature and none. And so by means of faith, we accept the grace of God, which is in, in faith is a non-meritorious system of perception, which is in total accord with the grace of God. So let's look at Ephesians chapter 2. Let's look at verse 1. Ephesians 2, 1. And although you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you formerly lived according to this world's present path, according to the rule of the kingdom of the year, the rule of the spirit that is now energizing the sons of disobedience, the unbeliever and Satan, among whom all of us also formerly lived out our lives and the cravings of our flesh prior to our justification, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest, the rest of the human race. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even though we were dead in transgressions and he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you were saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why did he do that? To demonstrate in the coming ages the surpassing, surpassing wealth of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you were saved through faith, faith in Jesus. And this is not from yourselves. See, it's non-meritorious. It's the gift of God. It is not from works so that no one can boast. Okay, it's, it's non-meritorious. The system of perception faith is, and we have, this is not from yourselves, and it is not from works, so that no one can boast, is telling us that. And then he says in verse, 20, uh, verse 10, we're not saved based upon our own works, our own merits, but we are saved for performing good works by the power of the Spirit that are pleasing to God and that be rewarded at the Bama seat. That's what he says in verse 10, for we are his workmanship, having been created in Christ Jesus for good works, not on the basis of good works, but for good works, that God prepared before him so that we may do them. So grace and faith are totally compatible with each other and inseparable, and they complement one another. Uh, you can do, use Ephesians 2.8 as a documentation. Also, uh, Romans chapter uh, 4, verse 16 makes that clear. Grace, faith, and salvation actually all the gift of God and totally exclude 
all human works and ability. So it's very humbling uh, to the people of the world, unregenerate people, because our arrogance and the deception of Satan in this world, everyone is deceived by the devil, unless the Holy Spirit lifts that veil and he does through faith in Christ. Uh, we see that uh, the human race thinks that they can have merit with God, that they can get brownie points with God. I'm a good person. Uh, I, I built a cancer hospital for you know can kids with cancer. Uh, I helped the old lady across the street. Uh, I give money to uh, you know uh, St. Jude's Hospital. I give, I mean, all good things and everything. There's nothing wrong with that. But that's not going to make you give you the merit to get into heaven because you have to. God demands perfection. He's holy. When we use the word holy with regards to God, it's a, a bit different than we use it when we relate it to believers. Uh, when God is holy, that means his character and nature transcends that of his moral, rational creatures, both men and angels. There's nobody like God. Why? His character transcends our, the character of human beings and angels. Why? Because God is perfect. We know what sin is based upon what his word, holy word says, which reflects his holy standards. So God doesn't have any imperfections in him. That's why he had his son, set his son, his perfect son into the world to fulfill the law because we couldn't fulfill it perfectly and that's what he requires. If you want to live by the law, you have to keep all the law, not some of the law, Paul says in Galatians chapter three. So no one in the human race measures up. In fact, no one in the angelic race measures up. We know that from Revelation five where there was no one in heaven, that would be the angels of course, and on earth and under the earth that could open the seven seal scroll, uh, which is the title deed to planet earth in Revelation uh, 5 and John prompted John to cry. But uh, he said, behold, the Lamb of God has overcome. So we see that uh, Jesus had to become a human being and to, so he could fulfill perfectly the law. And uh, so he was impeccable. And, uh, and so therefore, when he did that, and then he suffered also, uh, the wrath of God in our place so that we wouldn't suffer the wrath of God forever in the lake of fire. That was all God initiating this. It flowed from his attribute of love. These are all unmerited blessings. You know, God loved us. He loved us. He, God so loved the world, but the world was very unattractive to God, right? We're all sinners by nature and practice. Even the most moral person is disgusting in the eyes of God. We're, we're sinners by nature and practice. Uh, we're born into sin. Uh, we, our parents, Adam and Eve, all the way back to them, they passed down the sin nature to uh, their, their, uh, their progeny through sex. And the sin nature gets passed down through sex. That's why our physical bodies uh, deteriorate and die eventually, go back to the dust of the ground. But our souls, okay, if we're faith, faith alone in Jesus Christ, our souls go, we're absent from the body, face to face with the Lord, we're going to get a resurrection body. And the unbeliever goes to torments and eventually the lake of fire in a resurrection body that gives them the capacity to suffer eternal condemnation in the lake of fire. That's according to several passages, Daniel 12 for one. And so we see that, uh, that uh, grace is uh, very humbling. And so that's the difference between biblical Christianity. I say biblical Christianity because Roman Catholicism, which is Christian and a lot of its teach, uh, teaching, but is also very humanistic and, and, and legalistic. Uh, and that uh, they believe that uh, you know you have to do so many our fathers hail marys uh, they even have to give money to the church so that you can keep somebody out of get somebody out of purgatory stuff like that purgatory is a false doctrine so we see that uh, you know this is so there's a lot of all religions in the world including islam they basically it's a meritorious uh, uh, meritorious uh, they get it you get it to have based upon your merits but god doesn't consider anybody to have any merit with him. All the sin and fallen short of the glory of God.
There's none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.23 and 3.10 uh, respectively. So God had to treat us better than we deserve. He had to treat us despite, uh, well but despite ourselves. He saved us despite ourselves. He saved us when we, were, uh, we were, when, our, when we were dead in our sins and transgressions, when we were his enemies. He sent his son to the cross to suffer the wrath of God in our place. So there's nothing attractive about anybody in the human race. And you know that by looking at the way the world is, the history of the world ever since the fall. Just look at the, look at the world today. Look at the world in the last hundred years. Look at the wars we had. War after war after war. Look at the crime. Look at the child abuse. Look at uh, parents killing their children. Uh, you have uh, children killing their parents. You have people going in and gunning down innocent people in a, in a movie theater. You have murder. You have slander. You have uh, people ste stealing, breaking into stores, <laughs> stealing things, running out. And the police don't even bother with them because it's not worth it. <laughs> There's too many of this thing going on. It has to be over $1,000 before I go chase these guys down in California. You want to know why our country's a mess? We're sinners. There's a devil. We're sinners by nature and practice. And we're a pretty lousy group of, pe group of uh, creatures. And yet God cared about us because we were created in his image. And also God has a plan. He, he wants to glorify himself, number one. And that, but he does that by taking us worthless sinners and tra transforming us into the image of his son. <laughs> and that's something. Look at Titus chapter three. Look at verse, we'll look at verse, start at verse one. Titus three, one, I'm reading from the Net Bible this time. Remind them, the recipients of uh, the, the, uh, this letter was uh, the, the Cretan Christian community. Remind the Cretan Christian community to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. They must not slander anyone, but be peaceable, gentle, showing complete courtesy to all people. For we too were once foolish, disobedient, misled, enslaved to various passions. That's before our justification. Spending our lives in evil and envy, hateful and hating one another. That's what we got in this world today, a lot of hate and envy and evil. Then it says in verse 4, but... I love that but, just like in Ephesians 2.3, uh, 2, but, but when the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not by works of righteousness, the good deeds that we do, that we have done in, on the basis of, on, but on the basis of His mercy. And His mercy flows from his act, the function of the attribute, attribute of His love. We know that Paul says that in Ephesians 2.4. You know, by, because, of his great, because of His great love, He demonstrated mercy to us when we were unregenerate. So he says, he saved us not by works of righteousness that we've done on the basis of his mercy through the washing of the new birth and the renewing of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us in full measure through Jesus Christ our Savior. And so since we've been justified by his grace, we become heirs with the confident expectation of eternal life. So we see that the unique person of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross is the source of grace. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says that, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that although uh, he was rich, he became poor for our sake, so that you by his poverty, him becoming a human being, you could become rich, having, you know, being a partaker of the divine nature, as Paul says, uh, as Peter says. So then we see that Jesus Christ was full of grace and truth. John 1.17 teaches us that, and the believer receives the grace of God through him, according to John 1.16. We'll look at uh, John chapter uh, uh, John chapter 1, Look at verse 14. 
John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 14. Now the Word became flesh, a human being, and took up residence, pitched his tent, it literally says in the Greek, among us. And we saw his glory, the glory of the one and only, full of grace and truth, who came from the Father. John testified about him, John the Baptist, and shouted, This one was the one about whom I said, He who comes after me is greater than I am, because he existed before me, the, the pre-existence of Christ. For we all received from his fullness one gracious gift after another. Amen to that. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through about through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only one himself, God, who was in closest fellowship with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Word of God in the flesh, has made God the Father known. He's revealed him through his words and actions during his first advent. So it's by grace, by the grace of God, that Jesus Christ died a substitutionary spiritual and physical death for all mankind. That's in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9 says that. And therefore, the throne in which Christ sits is a throne of grace. Uh, look at Hebrews chapter 4, look at verse 14, reading from the Net Bible. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest incapable of sympathizing with our weaknesses. This is Jesus, of course, he's saying. But one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. He was sinless, impeccable. Therefore, let us confidently approach the throne of grace to receive mercy and grace whenever we need help. Uh, prior to uh, Christ, his uh, crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, and session of the right hand of the Father, the throne of God was a throne of judgment for us human beings because we're sinners by nature and practice. But when Christ cru was crucified, died, buried, raised, and seated at the right hand of the Father, that throne of judgment became a throne of grace for us sinners, meaning God could treat us better than we deserve. But first, uh, you need to understand that the point of contact with God, the human race has with God, is the justice and righteousness of God, and the doctrine of propitiation, the holiness of God. So, because if Christ didn't propitiate the Father by suffering the wrath of God on the cross in our place, when we were his enemies. If Christ didn't do that, there would be no uh, uh, propitiation of the Father, meaning the Father demands us sinners to be judged, but he didn't want to judge us, so he judged his Son in our place. So he accepted what Christ did on the cross in our place by suffering the wrath of God for us, uh, and he accepted that, and he said to be propitiated. We studied the doctrine of propitiation when I was uh, during my stay in Massachusetts uh, last year. So, uh, we are, uh, he was propitiated. Is, he was satisfied. Propitiation means he's satisfied with the work of his son on the cross in our, for us, on our, as a substitute for us. So therefore, that allowed God to have his, uh, his, his grace, his unmerited blessings to be flowing to us. And of course, God's attribute of love, the function of it, caused him to send his son to propitiate him, his holiness, his justice, and right, his righteousness. So uh, these unmerited blessings flow to us, and now the throne of God is a throne of grace for his people. Look at it says, confidently approach the throne of grace. I wonder how many Christians are approaching God's throne in prayer uh, with uh, confidently. You should. You are in union with Christ. You sit at the right hand of the, God, of the Father. That's what the Word of God says. That means God views you as in union with His Son, so you're seated with His Son. As He sees His Son, He sees you and I as believers. That's an un unmerited blessing. We don't earn it or deserve it. Remember, God put the human race under two people. Adam, the first Adam, that's a place of wrath and judgment. And Christ, place of blessing. Okay? We're in union with Christ. So God looks at the human race either as either under one of these two individuals, either the Son of God, the incarnate Son of God, or the first Adam. 
So if you believe in Jesus as your Savior and you're seated at the right hand of the Father, what are you waiting for? Go boldly to the throne of grace. I do every day, all the time, throughout the day. And that's where you receive mercy and find grace whenever we need help. And as we saw in verse 15, this passage, we have a high priest who sympathizes with us. He knows our human condition. He, without, yet he's without sin. He can identify with us. That's why it was important. That's why it's important. One of the major things you have to believe to get saved about Jesus is you got two major things. He both that he's both God and man. Why? Because if he's not both God and man, then we don't have any mediator between a holy God and human beings, us. And also you have to believe his resurrection because if you don't believe in his resurrection, he's just another dead person and a dead Jew who thought he was something that he was not. So the resurrection is essential. So those two things, you have to believe those two things, which is basically the gospel that Paul describes in, in 1 Corinthians 15. And so there's this big talk out in Christianity and, you know, some guys and what, how, much do, how much do you have to believe about Jesus to get saved? Well, there it is right there. That's just what the scriptures say. <laughs> I mean, there's, the reason why that is is because that's as important because there's a lot of people preaching Jesus that's not Jesus that the apostles testified to. Okay? Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. If you believe any other Jesus that doesn't believe that's not that, did that, that didn't do that, you're believing a false Jesus. A false Jesus. It's a false gospel. Okay, that's why they said they used to make an issue about he, 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 you know, about Jesus being the Son of God and that he died on the cross for our sins and he was raised for our justification and we have witness, we're witnesses to it. Very important. So there we see this passage, great passage on the grace of God. Very famous passage. It says in Hebrews 2.10, but we, in the New American Standard, but we do see him, Christ, who was made a little lower, while lower than the angels, meaning talking about him being a human being, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. He was our substitute, and it was an unmerited blessing. We didn't earn it or deserve it. The message of God's saving act in Christ is described as the gospel of the grace of God in Acts 20, 24, and the word of his grace in Acts 20, verse 32. Now, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14 teaches that believers in the Lord Jesus Christ are the recipients of three categories of grace. Antecedent grace, which is talked about in Ephesians 1, uh, 3 through 5. That just talks about the Father's work in, on our behalf in eternity past. And then there's living grace, which is our spiritual life and its accompanying invisible assets. And number three, eschatological grace, which is you and I being in a resurrection body and having uh, receiving our uh, rewards for faithful service, or our eternal inheritance, in other words. And so, uh, if you look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, I'm going to read from the uh, Net Bible. Ephesians 1, 3, Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We didn't earn it or deserve it. Grace. For he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that's election, so that we may be holy and unblemished in his sight. In love, he did this by predestinating, uh, predestining us to adoption as his son through Jesus Christ according to the pleasure of his will. And this was done to the praise of the glory of his grace. So that he freely bestowed on us in his dearly loved son. Or because of his, what his, who his, his son is and what he did for us. So the glory of his grace, the work of the Father in our behalf in eternity past and electing and predestinating us to be conformed to the image of his son and to be adoption and for the being adopted by him as his sons is based, is glorifies his grace policy. 
Then we have verse 7 through 12 talking about the work of Christ in our end time. In him, Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to what? The riches of his grace that he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He did this when he revealed to us the secret of his will according to the good pleasure that he set forth in Christ toward the administration of the fullness of times to sum up all things in Christ, that things in heaven and things on the earth. In Christ, we too have been claimed as God's own possession since we are predestined according to the one purpose of him who accomplishes all things according to the counsel of his will so that we, who were the first to set our hope on Christ, would be to the praise of his glory. Then we have talk about the work of the Holy Spirit in uh, verses 13 and 14 at our justification. And when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed in Christ, you were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit, who the Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance, rewards for faithful service and resurrection body until the redemption, the resurrection of the church, of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. So therefore, since God has dealt graciously with you and I, you and I as church-age believers are in turn commanded to be gracious. Treat everybody in grace, all members of the human race, both believers and unbelievers. Ephesians 4.32 teaches us that. Colossians 3.13, 4.6, and 1 Thessalonians 3.12. Look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, uh, verse 30. Start there. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The day of the redemption is speaking of you being in a resurrection body. You must put away every kind of bitterness, anger, wrath, quarreling, evil, slanders, talk. Instead, be kind to one another, compassionate, forgiving one another, just as God and Christ also forgave you. He treated us in grace. We should treat each other in grace. Then he says in chapter 5, verse 1, no chapter break in the original. Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children and live in love, just as Christ also loved us and gave himself up for us a sacrifice, sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. Now, a Christian is someone who is a partaker of the grace of God, Philippians 1, 7, and the, he or she, as a believer, should live by the same principle of grace after salvation. Uh, look at Colossians. Look at Colossians chapter 2. Look at verse 1. A book we did in detail when I was back in Marion, Iowa, a long time ago now it seems. Colossians 2, 1, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those in Laodicea, and for those who have not met, my, met me face to face. My goal is that their hearts, having been knit together in love, may be encouraged, and that they may all have the riches that assurance, the riches that assurance brings in their understanding of the knowledge of the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, I say this so that no one will deceive you through arguments that sound reasonable. This is talking about the, uh, the Judaizers, particularly the uh, Essene branch of Judaism and, uh, and all that they were involved in. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your morale and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Then he says in verse 6, Therefore, just as you received Christ as Lord by, faith to, uh, by grace through faith, right, continue to live your lives in him in the same manner rooted and built up in him, firm in your faith, just as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. So, grace is the Christian sphere of existence. Romans 1, 7, 1 Corinthians 1, 3, Colossians 1, 2. The believer who rejects this principle is said to have fallen from grace. That's what Paul teaches the Galatian Christian community in Galatians 5, 1 through 5, who have fallen victim to the Judaizers, who were Jewish Christians trying to put Gentile Christians under the law. Acts 15, they had a church council about it, and they said, no, they were wrong to do that, these Judaizers. 
And so this was a chronic problem for Paul and the church. And so uh, we see that uh, the Gentile Christian community in Galatia, he was saying, had fallen from grace, meaning now they were trying to please God uh, based upon meritorious works as a result of obedience to the law. They were wrong about that. They, were, they got the spirit and forgiveness of sins through faith, by grace through faith. And this note, the principle after justification doesn't change. So it says in Galatians 5, verse 1, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery, legalism, and the, Ju the Judaistic teaching of these uh, Judaizers. Listen, I, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no benefit to you at all. So they were telling them, the Judaizers were telling them that you need to be circumcised. And that was something, an identity market for the Israelites, not for Gentiles. And it was under the law. But the, the Gentiles were never given the law. Paul makes it clear in Galatians, Romans 9, 1 through 5. It was given to the Jews. To, and that was their constitution. Uh, the Gentiles had never given the Mosaic law. <laughs> they were never, ever, look at the Old Testament. It was given to Israel, not the Gentiles. End of discussion. There's no debate. But yet we got people trying to live by the law. And you live by the gospel, mystery doctrine of the church age, the apostolic teaching that, that's in our New Testament. And it says in verse 3, And I testify again to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he's obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be declared righteous by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. You got saved. You got, you got uh, declared righteous through faith in Jesus Christ, not on your own merits, but on the merits of the object of your faith, Jesus Christ. And it was based upon God's grace policy. Now, you, you're, now you're listening to these guys telling you you have to be circumcised to be declared righteous by God. Then he says in verse 5, For through the Spirit, by faith, we wait expectantly for the hope of righteousness, the confident expectation of being perfected in righteousness with a resurrection body. Then he says in verse 6, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision carries any weight. The only thing that matters is faith working through love. Then he says, You are running well. Who prevented you from obeying the truth? Scathing letter to them. So the believer is commanded to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 3.18 teaches us that. And also the believer experiences the grace of God while in fellowship with God, which is accomplished by obedience to his word. The grace of God has been manifested and revealed to the entire human race in time through the following. One, the unique theanthropic person of history, Jesus Christ. Two, the salvation work or salvific work of Christ on the cross. Number three, the Word of God. And number four, the Holy Spirit's various uh, salvation and post-conversion ministries. Now, in relation to the unbeliever, God the Father's gracious provision of salvation based upon the faith, based upon faith in the merits of the person and work of Christ on the cross is revealed by the Holy Spirit through the communication of the gospel. In relation to the believer, the Holy Spirit through the communication of the Word of God reveals all the benefits of God the Father's gracious provision for our salvation. The Spirit of God, through the communication of the Word of God, reveals all that the Father has graciously done and provided for the believer to do as well. So therefore, we learn about the grace of God by listening to the Spirit's voice, which is heard through the communication of the Word of God. Paul says in Colossians 1, 3-6, We always give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you since we heard about your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. Your faith and love have arisen from the hope laid up for you in heaven, which you have heard about in the message of truth, the gospel, that has come to you. Just as in the entire world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing, so it has also been bearing fruit and growing among you from the first day you heard it 
and understood the grace of God and truth. How do they hear that? Through the gospel, the communication of the gospel from Epaphras, as he says in verse 7. And then there's peace. We'll finish off our lesson here today by noting another major theme is peace. Peace is another major theme in this epistle because the word for peace, erene, appears eight times in this epistle. Ephesians 1, 2, uh, 2.14 we saw. And Ephesians 1, 2 we saw. And 2.14 it's found. 15, 17 twice. And also Ephesians 4, 3, 6, 15, and 23 uh, mentions uh, this particular uh, theme, peace. God, as to his nature and essence, is peace, people. 15, Romans 15, 16, 20 teaches us that, as well as uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, 23. And, since he, and so, since he, uh, God is to his nature and essence is peace, and since he brought about through his son's death a reconciliation between himself and the other two members of the Trinity and sinful humanity. So the sinner appropriates this peace treaty through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. Acts 10, 36, Romans 5, 1, Ephesians 2, 14, 15, and 17. This reconciliation is presented in the gospel message that God has made a peace treaty with the entire human race. And the terms of that peace treaty is accepting the gospel message through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. In relation to the unbeliever, the gospel is God's victorious proclamation of God's love in delivering the entire human race from sin, Satan, his cosmic system, and eternal condemnation, and has reconciled them to himself through the death and resurrection of his son. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4 teaches us that. And this reconciliation, people, with God, and deliverance and victory over sin, Satan, his cosmic system, and eternal condemnation, that a God accomplished through his son's crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, and session, is received as a gift and appropriated through faith in Jesus Christ. John 3, 16-18 teaches us that. Acts 16, 31, and Romans 5, 1, and 2. So this peace treaty that the Father made with the human race through uh, the crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, and session of His Son at the right hand. This peace treaty is the direct result of, the, of these events in Jesus' life, in particular His spiritual and physical deaths on the cross where He suffered the wrath of God in our place. They are appropriated, this peace treaty is appropriated uh, it, actually, as we said before, actually these deaths, the Jesus suffering the wrath of God on the cross for us, being abandoned by his Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The scourgings, the physical torture of the crucifixion, physical death, being uh, mocked and jeered by people and slandered. Uh, him suffering the wrath of God propitiated the Father's holiness that expresses itself in righteous indignation against sin and sinners. So he expressed his righteous indignation toward his Son. Don't tell me God doesn't love people. He does. He loves every last person, including Adolf Hitler and Bill Winstrom. Or the worst person you think in the history of the world is. And there's been a few, okay? But if you put it, everybody, nobody measures up. We're all stink to high heaven. We're awful. And so therefore, our Lord, through his work on the cross, broke down the barrier which separated man from God and is composed of the following. One, man commits acts of sin. That's one barrier. Number two, the penalty of sin is spiritual death. That's another barrier that separates us between God, who is holy, and us sinners. Number three, all are born spiritually dead at physical birth. Romans 5.12 teaches us that. Ephesians 2.1. Number four, man's relative righteousness cannot compare to God's perfect righteousness. As Isaiah 64.6 talks about very famously in Romans 9.30-33. Number five, the character of God demands that our sins be judged. That's another barrier that we have. 
And number six, man's position in Adam as a result of the imputation of his sin. 1 Corinthians 15, 22. It says, for just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. So we're dead in Christ, spiritually dead. Spiritually dead means you have no capacity to please a holy God, nor do you desire to. You have no desire. You don't seek out God. God sought out you. And your arrogance, you think you sought out God. No, God, he sought out you. You wouldn't even, the Holy Spirit led you, to helped you understand the gospel so that you could get saved. <laughs> So you could make a non-meritorious decision. Then the Holy Spirit appropriated what Christ did for us at the moment of our justification. You didn't earn it to deserve it. You weren't seeking God. I wasn't seeking God. He was seeking after us. Look at the fall of our parents, Adam and Eve. They, ridden, uh, they ran and hid themselves. Who came after them? God did. That's how he comes after all of us. Now the removal of the barrier between us and God. Rede- number one, redemption. Redemption resolves man's problem with sin. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, Ephesians 1, 7, Titus 2, 14, and 1 Timothy 2, 6. Number two, unlimited atonement also resolves man's sin problem. 1 John 2, 2 says that uh, Christ is the propitiation, propitiation, atoning sacrifice for our sins, the church. And not only for ours, the church, but also for the entire world. It can't get any clearer of unlimited atonement. And, but amazingly, very wa- smart uh, men very uh, still believe in uh, uh, limited atonement. Just absolutely fascinates, astonishing to me. Again, I think that's because I know it's because they're so uh, they feel like they'd be unfaithful. I mean, they're so uh, their their theology that they learn from whoever it was. Uh, it basically uh, it's probably a Calvinistic theology. Uh, even though John Calvin believed in unlimited atonement, if you read some of his commentaries, I've seen some of his quotes on him. So. Poor Calvin got a bad rap. It was Basil who was actually the problem. So he unlimited atonement. He, he Christ died for everyone. Number three, another barrier which Christ removed through his work on the cross, expiation. That resolves man's problem with the penalty of sin, which is spiritual death, Colossians 2.14. Number four, regeneration resolves our problem with being born spiritually dead. John chapter three teaches us that. Number five, imputation, resulting in justification, resolves the problem of man's relative righteousness. 1 Corinthians 1.30, it says he is the reason Christ is, that we have a relationship with, uh, the Father is the reason why we have a relationship with Christ Jesus, who, Christ Jesus, became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. At the moment of our justification, when we trust in Jesus Christ, the Father imputed, credited his son's righteousness to us and he declared us justified. Then, we have another barrier that was another uh, aspect of Christ's work on the cross that resolved the barrier between sinful human beings and a holy God. Propitiation, which I mentioned earlier, which we taught on here. Propitiation resolves man's problem with the perfect character of God. Romans 3, 22 through 26 teaches us that. Again, 1 John 2, 2. And then lastly, number seven, our position in Christ resolves man's position in Christ or position, our position in Christ resolves man's position in Adam, as I mentioned before. 1 Corinthians 5.22 teaches us that in 2 Corinthians 5.17. So the author, and thus the initiator of the peace treaty between a holy God and, and sinful human beings is God the Father, of course. The great passage on that is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 to the end of that chapter. Also look at Ephesians 1, 3 through 7 and Ephesians 2, 14 through 16 for documentation. So man... Mankind was totally helpless to make peace with God. And since he was the enemy of God, mankind, because of his sin and rebellion, but God reconciled man to himself through the death of his son. So the Lord Jesus Christ 
is the mediator of the peace treaty. 1 Timothy 2, 5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and humanity, Christ Jesus himself, human, who gave himself as a ransom for all, revealing God's purpose at his appointed time. So if you're going to get saved, you better believe that Jesus is both God and man. If you don't, you're not going to get saved. Paul makes that, 1 John makes that clear. Okay? Actually, he's trying to maintain, uh, talking to Christians about maintaining their fellowship if they start listening to the false doctrine of the Gnostics and believe that Jesus Christ is just God, not man. Uh, they're not going to be fellowship with God. They're, not, they're going to lose, they're going to be out of fellowship because not only is there uh, justification based upon the God-man, but also their fellowship, <laughs> which stems from our, where our, which flows from our justification through faith in Jesus. So he's the mediator between uh, sinful human beings and a holy God. So the Lord is the peacemaker. And since this pre peace treaty took place, was accomplished through him. Through him. So God offers the entire world a full pardon of their sin through faith in His Son. Therefore, the terms of the peace treaty are very simple. Either believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. What aspect that He exists, even the demons do. No, we have to, there's something about Jesus in the gospel that says He died on the cross and He rose from the dead. He, God became a human being, died on the cross for us, rose from the dead, according to the scriptures. Okay? And He was raised for our justification. That's the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4. So therefore... Uh, if you don't believe in the resurrection, you're not going to get saved. If you don't believe he's both God and man, you're not going to get saved. Because if he's not both God and man, then how are we going to get saved? We need a mediator between us sinners and a holy God. So the peace of God, we'll wrap up with this. The peace of God is accomplished in the believer's life in three stages. Positionally, that's the first stage. That means the believer has peace with God because of their eternal union and identification with his son, Jesus Christ, which they receive through faith alone, and Jesus Christ alone positionally means this is how God views you. This is what he did for you at, his, at your justification. It sets up the guarantee of being perfected in a resurrection body. And it also sets up the potential to experience this peace in time through obedience to God's word. Number two, experientially, there it is. The believer can experience the peace of God by being obedient to the word of God. And then lastly, which I mentioned, perfective. The perfective aspect of the peace of God in our lives, that means the believer, you and I, are guaranteed that we'll experience permanently the peace of God and a resurrection body. Again, by positionally, I mean that God views us as being at peace with Him as a result of our faith in Christ and our eternal union with Him, which sets up the potential, as I said before, to experience this peace in time. It also, as I said before, sets up the guarantee of experiencing permanently this peace when you and I receive a resurrection body at the rapture, the resurrection of the church, which is imminent. And then after our conversion, after our justification, we experience the peace of God. It's only exp experiencing the peace of God is only potential, as I said, because it demands obedience on the part of the believer to God. Whereas the believer is guaranteed that they'll experience the peace of God permanently in a resurrection body. So right now we're in the stage of experiencing that peace and we experience that peace by obeying, obeying God's word. So we finished off the introduction today and I could have gone a little longer with the introduction. We wouldn't, this was long enough. But um, so now we're ready. Uh, all these things that we touched upon in the introduction are for interpreting this book and helping us understand this book and make a proper interpretation. And because we, if we don't interpret the book, so we want to know what the original author meant or the original audience understood Paul to be saying. Authorial intent. Okay? So it's, that's why we have to go interpret. Now, we can't make application until we interpret, and we can't interpret correctly without the, the, the prayerfully studying 
the Word of God, the Spirit helping us and guiding us and interpreting this book. Then we can talk about application. What is this book saying? What was the author's intent? And then we, that's the interpreter's uh, job. And now once we know that, then we can see the implications, the application of a passage to our lives. Very important. But a lot of Christians don't want, as I said many times, a lot of Christians don't want to do that. They just want to go right to the application. And basically, it's just laziness and stupidity when you think about it. Do you read a book that way? When you read a book or an email from your boss, you want to know what your boss intends in the email. You want to try to get, understand what it is. Or you read a newspaper or you read online the newspaper. Or read, or read a book, you know, you read Lord of the Rings. You know, you, you want to know what, the, what the, per, the intent of this thing is, right? Well, why is the Bible any different? It's, it's, it's a human book, but it's a divine book. And God uh, commuted his will to us in human language so we could understand. So I went through these various things in our introduction, which will help us in interpreting this particular letter, which we will look at, begin a verse-by-verse study of this book on Saturday morning at 11 a.m. Central Standard Time. Well, thank you for joining us. Again, we'll pick this up Saturday. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you then, Lord willing. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. Study your word. We pray that this lesson be a blessing to your people, bringing glory to you and your Son, Jesus Christ, as a result. In his name we pray. Amen.